It's always weird going back to episodes like this one. You know, knowing what we know. All the stuff that they hadn't designed yet. I've kind of been discussing Julian Bashir as we go through these. He doesn't really have a presence in this episode, so that's not going to come up. But he's not the only thing that they effectively retcon during the course of the show. And I say that because, if we're being 100% honest, the Dominion is in many ways a retcon. They were never intended to be what they are. In fact, as I'll discuss later, they were just mentioning it as an aside to try and get across, you know, some organization. In fact, well, again, I'll, I'll get to that later. But knowing what we know now about the Changelings and the Vorta and the Jem'Hadar, this episode becomes more interesting, doesn't it? Now, parallels between Tosk and the Jem'Hadar are obvious. In fact, uh, funnily enough, when I first saw this and saw his appearance, my first thought, was that this was a prototype Jem'Hadar um, out of character, you know that that the that the mask and and makeup they used to 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 dress up Tosk would be something they would later use for the Jem'Hadar. I couldn't find anything specifically indicating that, though many many people admit that there are even people who worked on the show admit the obvious similarities between the Tosk and the Jem'Hadar. You know the cloak, the hunter instinct, the the bread. It's for specifically genetic engineering, etc., etc., all that stuff. Now, <clears throat> this can still line up in lore, but only if we're willing to stretch it. The general idea, and this is implied in a few cases and outright stated in some non-canon works, is that the Dominion basically gifted the Hunters with the Tosk for whatever reason, for whatever purpose. I'm guessing the Hunters are people who joined or enforcers or otherwise bowed to the will of the founders and so okay here you go here's your toy because we do know that the dominion are very political far more so than most of the other large enemy races that the the federation and star trek in general finds itself fighting so you know they're willing to play politics they're willing to play carrot and the stick so the idea of join us and we will give you this ultimate hunt it kind of makes sense and given the fact that the Jem'Hadar probably already existed at that point it would then be relatively simple to basically make a weaker less capable Jem'Hadar with slightly different circumstances to make them you know into this perfect prey so that the hunt is awesome now that's all kind of explainable and kind of makes sense, especially since the Dominion were not planned. What I find interesting is the similarities between these people and the Herogen. Because, as weird as this is going to sound, I think the Herogen were better done than the Hunters. I know, weird, but that's probably because the Herogen had multiple episodes, if we're being honest. But it's always weird to me when Voyager does something better than Deep Space Nine. Doesn't happen often. But it does happen every now and again. I also want to give special uh, credit to Scott McDonald. He's the gentleman who plays Tosk. He's a good actor. He does a really good job with this. He's a good guest star. He's not one of the best. Most of his roles, people are probably like, who the hell's that guy? He played Nevek over in TNG. Now I bet you're thinking, who the hell's that? It's probably a Vulcan or a Romulan based on the name, but that's all you got, right? He was the Romulan plant guy in the... Uh, Enemy Mine? Was that the name of the episode? No, no, no. I can't think of the name of the episode. It's the one where Troy is dressed up as a Romulan against her will, that episode. I think he did a good job on that one. He also played the Jem'Hadar, who was miraculously cured of the Ketracel White problem in the Hippocratic Oath. But mo the one that re I really reminded of, and I kind of caught a little bit of this in this portrayal, is he played Dolem. 
No, I, I would bet money that most of my uh, viewers watching now, even Trek fans, are like, who the hell is Dolem? He was the villain of Season 3 of Enterprise. Yes, the villain. No, no, I don't mean the Sphere Builders. I mean the Reptilian lead. You know the guy. If you sit back and think about the Zindi arc, the head Reptilian, the guy who was really on board with the kill-them-all plan and was basically antagonistic even for a Zindi, that was Scott McDonald. He did a good job there, too, I think. But, uh, I digress. So, the episode begins, and Quark is apparently trying to make sexual advances on his, uh, co- uh, I wanted to say co-workers, but that's actually the wrong term. His employees, there we go, that's the right term. This is interesting, because, A, this is something that doesn't really come up again for a long time, to my knowledge, uh, in fact, I believe the next time it goes to the point of actual sexual harassment is the episode Profit and Lace. Yes, that one. So that's kind of... Uh. Then we have the fact that uh, this episode goes out of its way to make Quark a more likable character. Something that a lot of episodes will be doing. It's one of the reasons he's considered the quote-unquote breakout character of Deep Space Nine, and he's well-beloved by so many people. It's because he's kind of awesome. So, starting an episode in which you're doing that with, oh, by the way, he likes to try and manhandle his... <laughs> That's not a great way to start that. It feels really out of place. It feels so out of place that I'm not even sure why it was put into the episode. Now, let me actually explain what I mean by that. Deep Space Nine did something that TNG did occasionally, and TOS did occasionally, but DS9 really owned this concept. It's flavor-of-life moments. Every moment of every episode doesn't have to be devoted to the plot, or to the characters, or to, you know, oh god, what the, the arc, the overall story arc of the war, or whatever else is going on. It doesn't have to be devoted to that. So every now and again, and DS9 does this fairly consistently, the fact that they're doing this this early says a lot. They'll do just, here's a little bit of everyday life on Deep Space Nine kind of in the background. It doesn't really need attention drawn to it. It's one of the things that adds to that wonderful flavor of Deep Space Nine, because what it really is, is setting building. Not in the traditional sense, not in the culture, history, technology, science kind of a way. More in the, it makes it feel more like you're watching some actual station with actual events and everything isn't always connected to the main plot. It's the kind of thing I love in video games, for example, and I crave in video games, you know? I usually refer to this as the living, breathing world concept. So I think that's where they were going with this. Here's just an everyday problem. Doesn't everything do with anything. It's just a problem that Cisco is dealing with, blah, 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 the end. Okay, sure. I still think they could have gotten with something better than Quark is a bastard. I mean, come on, guys. Anyways, so then Cisco sends O'Brien to meet with Tosk, and while this wouldn't work with everyone, I do think this was kind of a brilliant choice, because Colmini is wonderfully affable. He's the kind of person that it's just hard not to get along with him. As I've said before, I'm pretty sure I'd get along with him you know, in real life, uh, and I would definitely get along with O'Brien. I can say that with absolute certainty in real life. So you send the guys just like, hey, you know, just kind of normal, casual, talking, hey, what's going on, kind of a thing. And I like that. And it fits, and it works perfectly well. Even, it, it, again, it wouldn't fit every race. But I find it interesting that the first 
First contact with an alien from the Gamma Quadrant is effectively made by O'Brien. Now, I know there's actually the later episode, uh, I believe it's Move Along Home, is when the actual formal first contact with another race happens. But informal first contact, this is actually something that a lot of science fiction has covered. I wish TNG would do more of this as well, because we always talk about first contact. This is something that happened in real life, too, when, when nations or peoples or cultures would meet each other for the first time, right? But first contact is usually the formal event. You know, we know China is there, we've talked with people from them, but now we're sending an envoy, and that's first contact. Those first few meetings, traders, explorers, soldiers, and uh, it's a lot more informal. And I know I'm probably reading too much into this, but I'm doing it with TNG. I do it with everything I do. I'm, I'm not going to hold back on this one. I think, personally, that this was a kind of done deliberately. An informal first contact under extraordinary circumstances. Nobody planned it. Just kind of bungled into each other, right? And then it's just two ordinary Joes, basically, interacting. Let me say something. This episode's not that good. A few people say this is their favorite episode from season one. Not mine, that'd be duet, at least if you ask me right now. We'll see if I change my mind in the future. But I, I can see why so many people enjoy this episode, because it sits on the strength of the two characters. O'Brien, Colmini, and Tosk, Scott McDonald. And the two people really do get across a, an amazing amount of chemistry, and the two act off each other pretty much perfectly. And so you get this sort of informal for lack of a better term, buddy coordination and friendship going on. And the whole rest of the episode, you know, we're willing to go with that because of the strength of that main thrust. And again, informal first contact. Because that is effectively what this is. First contact with the hunters, and if you count them as a separate political entity, the Tosk. Now, so... <laughs> I do like a couple little tidbits. O'Brien is not an idiot. I know I keep saying that, but I say that because for years, I know this is going to sound weird nowadays in 2017, current year argument, but I guess this isn't an argument. <laughs> I just like making fun of that, that concept. Current year argument. Anyways, in 2017, people tend to look back on DS9 a lot more fondly than the people I was talking to when it was coming out. Now, I know, remember, I kind of quit DS9 for a while there, and there's a reason for that. And admittedly, part of that reason is probably because my friends at the time, who were Star Trek fans, weren't really into it. I bring this up because one of the things that kept being brought up is, why is the engineer an idiot? You know, the chief engineer, we've got Scotty, and we've got, you know, Geordi, uh, who's brilliant. Later on, we'll have Taurus, eh, but she gets there. Later, later on, we'll have Tucker, who, once they start writing him well, is actually pretty awesome, but... What the hell's with this guy? And several people were upset that O'Brien was a simpleton. So I've I've got it in my mind, and forgive me. I, I've been recording all these. I've, the first episode hasn't even gone live yet, so I don't know what your guys' comments and feedback are yet. But forgive me for continuing to defend O'Brien as someone who is simple but still brilliant. And they do little touches here. It's not obvious. They don't have to sit down and have him single-handedly save the ship by glancing at a panel and saying, Ah, oh, of course! I will know what Troy and Crusher and, and Data weren't able to figure out, you know, like they did with Wesley. Instead, it's just little bits of competency. 
like the fact that he was able to figure out how to disable the people simply by escorting them. Like the fact that he was able to tell not only that the guy was lying about the damage to his ship, but come up with some details about the specifics of the damage to his ship just based on looking at it for a bit and, and crawling through it and able to, to try and un understand a ship whose design he's never even looked at before and actually get the thing repaired. He shows competency. And so... I feel like that slid under some people's noses, and I'll admit I didn't quite catch on to it too when I first saw this show, so I'll lump myself in there as well. Bad, stupid past lore. Bad. So, then, ah, there's this wonderful scene where we also get some good character dynamic between Odo and Tosk. Tosk is like, fiddle, fiddle, fiddle. Odo, of course, is, is a step ahead of him. Of course he is. And then he surrounds them with force fields. Now, Tosk is not violent. Tosk is not aggressive. In fact, Tosk is surprisingly cordial about this. I've done nothing to hurt you. I just, you know, I need to interact with that. I bring that up because I've noticed the way Odo reacts, or I should say acts to people, depends on how they act to him. Mostly in terms of his job, but also in general. The, the way he interacts with the other members of the crew tends to depend on how they treat him, right? So Tosk is fairly nice, non-aggressive, could have attacked him, could have cloaked and attacked him, doesn't do it. Could have cloaked and tried to run, doesn't do it. Doesn't get aggressive, doesn't yell, doesn't scream. So Odo is perfectly polite and perfectly reasonable. And it's a nice little touch and an interesting insight into his character, early insight into the way his mind works. And then, of course, Oda's like, so I would like to escort you here now. I would rather not fight you. You know, again, perfectly cordial. I still got my duty. And Tosk is like, okay. This scene is also interesting in hindsight. This is one of those things that could have been a plot hole. I don't know for sure, but I have a feeling that when they designed the Dominion, you know, sometime from now, over a year from now, that they sat down and said, okay, we have to explain why no one's been reacting to Odo. And if you remember, spoiler alert, you know, the, 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 the nature of who the founders are and their existence and all that was actually a fairly well-kept secret, and it was a big reveal when it was, when, you know, when we discovered their identity. So, the idea of him not reacting to Odo at all makes sense, because nobody would react to Odo at all. He's just some other guy from the Alpha Quadrant or whatever. Also, I just have to add something really quick. Consistently throughout the show, they will refer to the Alpha Quadrant. Now, I hate to get nitpicky about this, but I love getting nitpicky about this. So, um, Deep Space Nine is actually in the Alpha Quadrant, which is the lower left quadrant. Uh, the lower right quadrant, where the Federation primarily is, and the Romulans are, and the Klingons are, and the overwhelming bulk of Star Trek is, is actually the Beta Quadrant. I've always found it kind of weird that they consistently say, we must take the Alpha Quadrant. Now, I get that they don't want to say the Alpha and Beta Quadrants, but it's always, I've always found that a little bit funny. Anyways, moving on, moving on. So, the Hunters show up and have, by total contrast, have no regard for decency or politeness or anything. They immediately start fighting, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you notice Odo reacts to them completely differently and says, to hell with that, they're not taking anybody on my watch. You know, I'm not taking your damn weapon, by the way. Nice establishment thing, by the way. I believe this is the first time where he mentions he doesn't arm himself. I think that will come up again uh, in a more strong fashion later, but the seed is sown here. And then the hunters just barge in, 
and try to take them, and then they're all pissed off, blah, blah, blah. Why is that, do you think? Because I can think of three reasons for this. Either the hunters are idiots and didn't recognize that this is, you know, an alien station with alien races they've never encountered before and just decided, nah, we'll just treat it like it's an every everyday event. Or, I suppose I should add a sub-reason here, so reason 1.2, is that they're idiots and think that it doesn't matter because they're on the hunt and nothing can interfere with the hunt. doesn't matter if the Borg themselves show up. We're on the hunt. Yeah, resistance is futile. Option two. These people enjoy, shall we say, sufficient affluence back in the Gamma Quadrant to basically be able to say, no, we're doing this and we'll deal with the, uh, the detritus of whatever's left over afterwards. Because that's exactly what they do. They do the hunt. They don't even try to communicate. Not once. As soon as they complete the hunt, that's when they start talking. Okay, now we'll deal with it. He's even willing to bargain with Cisco. Not exactly a kind, you know, diplomatic bargain, but still, we will go ahead and cut this off from the from from the wormhole. It'll be off limits henceforth. We'll stay out of your yard. Is this acceptable? I get the feeling that this was the intent, the second option, that this was something they wanted to go with, that they're so used to just getting their way. And Again, looking back, if these are indeed members of the Dominion, and were indeed granted these as a favor for being a part of the Dominion, it would make sense that either people are used to that back there, or that they have enough, again, political power to be able to just get away with it. Or option three. Bad writing. <laughs> hear me out, hear me out, though. This is a specific slice of... of I shouldn't say bad writing. That, that sounds insulting. I use that term a little bit too much. I apologize. Option three is a specific slice of writing that I dislike. Okay, so I, I don't want to actually call this bad writing. And I've talked about this over in TNG, so it's kind of on my mind. Uh, it's the, here's an alien culture and here's us. We must do everything that they perceive of us, and we must be completely tolerant of their ways, and none of our ways or our laws or our culture matter. All that matters is their laws and their culture and their things, and we will do whatever stupid, ridiculous thing passes through their tiny little brains because we have to, you know, because these people don't understand how to write diplomacy. And again, that was a huge issue with early TNG. And I wonder if that was something that was being done here as well. Because you notice, aside from the Prime Directive being brought up a couple of times in ways that eh, only sort of apply, although credit where credit is due, they flat out mention the Prime Directive does not apply if he asks for asylum. Thank you for acknowledging that, because that's relevant. Sorry for segueing a moment to talk about the Prime Directive again. I know you guys are sick of hearing me talk about it, so I'm going to make this brief. Federation ship, distress beacon, answer, answer call, right? That's, that's procedure. And it's already been written, and I think, in fact, this even comes up in Voyager, where a distress call kind of bypasses the Prime Directive, even if it's a, it's a first contact situation, even if it's a race that's in thing. Distress call... They're in danger, life-threatening situation that bypasses most of the rules of the Prime Directive. Afterwards, the Prime Directive might get involved with what we do with what's left over, but in that moment, we can go and intervene. And they acknowledge that in this episode. He asks for asylum, we can go help him. Prime Directive no longer applies right now. At that point, it becomes the purview of the diplomats to settle whatever happens afterwards. So, nice touch there. Anyways... Whatever. So for whatever reason, they show up, you know, 
Um, I want to take a moment here to talk about the weird thing they do here. Actually, you know what? I want to I want to push that aside for a second because I want to talk about Quark first, and then I'll talk about the heavy stuff. So I mentioned they do some good characterization for Quark in this episode. Now, what's weird is it's all little stuff. Again, you know, kind of like the whole thing with O'Brien's competency. Uh, little flavor bits. Like Quark escorts a woman out for cheating, but then he says her coins will be returned to her. Or her currency, excuse me. That may seem like a little thing. And forgive me, for because I've been watching TNG alongside these, as I assume you guys have as well. And so it's just weird seeing how the Ferengi have been portrayed up till now. And then seeing this Ferengi, who is willing to be fair, that's not the kind of thing that usually comes up. And it's just this one little thing. It's not a big deal, but it's the kind of thing you're supposed to notice and just kind of log in the back of your mind, right? Like, huh, okay. And then, of course, he insists on not being called Barkeep. O'Brien's a dick to him throughout the whole episode about that, but what do you want? Humans are pretty biased against Ferengi. Nevertheless, and, and I'm not excusing that, by the way. <laughs> that even comes up in Voyager. So, Quark, you know, I don't want to be called Barkeep. I want to be someone who can talk and interact with you. And then there's the scene where he just starts to reach out to O'Brien. You know, what's going on? Now, I, for not a second, think that Quark is legitimately concerned or interested in O'Brien or his problems. But what I do think is that this is a very, very Ferengi way of approaching things. An actual Ferengi, not the comical caricatures we've had up in TNG, where they are so hilariously, cartoonishly bad at being greedy. No. A real business businessman will know a happy customer is a recurring customer. This is actually one of the most basic, fundamental concepts of economics. You want your customers happy. I've talked about this so many times on my show when it comes to video game development because consumer trust is something hard won and easily lost. You can't really put a tangible value on it, but it's there and it very seriously affects sales and your function as a business or a developer or whatever. You want people to leave your shop or your service or your company or whatever at least satisfied with what you did so that they'll come back so that they'll tell others to come here very basic economic stuff and so again this isn't like some big moment but this helps to distinguish quark in particular and as Armin Shimmerman himself said, trying to redeem the Ferengi from the cartoonishly idiots. You know, the, the Ferengi in the, in the rest, as they are portrayed in TNG, must be the boneheaded morons of the Ferengi alliance. The people who are so ridiculously stupid that they can never accomplish anything without accidentally bumbling into it. Quark is a businessman who apparently decides to be horrible with his employees, which, again, just irritates me that they have those two things side by side. We've got great character development, and then that. What? Anyways. You know, if I may be really quick, before I get into the heavy stuff, I just want to comment on a couple of scenes, so... I find it interesting that the hunters don't want to let the prey, the tosk, go. It, it seems just kind of like a strange thing. Oh, by the way, if you're wondering why I keep calling them the hunters, they're never named. We never get a species or even an organization. It's not like the Herogen or whatever. They're just the hunters. Anyways, so I like 
<sighs> Not getting to that yet. I wonder why they don't allow more of their captives to escape if they're captured alive. I mean, I get it, the whole cultural thing. I'll talk about that in a minute. But why is this considered a bad thing? O'Brien himself flat out said, they wanted to hunt, they weren't happy about this, so I gave them a hunt, right? I mean, if it's so rare to capture one alive, why not go ahead and just be like, all right, you got ten seconds, go. You know, which is effectively what happens in this episode. The hunt is on. I don't know. I do like there's this great scene, and it would be easy for it to be boring, but they, but a, a René Abergenois manages to nail it. So, uh, so Oda's like, oh, I know exactly where they're going. I'll catch them. And Cisco says, Constable, there's no hurry. And, of course, Odo figures it out pretty much immediately, nods his head, and then just kind of slowly, casually saunters over. And he gets it. You can tell he gets it. If he didn't get it, he would protest. If Excuse me, if he didn't agree, he would protest. But he's just like, yeah, okay. Da, 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 da. Do, do. And it's it's just a brilliant scene. It made me laugh. It made me grin. I had to share it. Anyways, one last thing here, and I'll use this to tie into the uh, the big culture thing I want to talk about. Uh, Tosk says to O'Brien, "Die with honor," and I like that because. This is something that Deep Space Nine does a pretty good job of in general. They like to flesh out the cultures of the aliens they introduce. Obviously, you know, Bajorans, Ferengi, Cardassians, Klingons, Dominion are the big ones there. But they like to do this on a case-by-case basis. In some cases, like here, because we've established that for these people and the way they function and the way they work, there is nothing higher. It is the highest possible honor that they can conceive to die with honor. So... This isn't quite like a Klingon thing, because there's there's things that are more valuable to a Klingon than honor or dying with honor. This is an absolute. This is the, the ceiling. And so the fact that he is willing to grant this, this phrase to O'Brien shows the level of significance of how much he is grateful to O'Brien for what he's done, for giving him a chance to redeem himself. And then O'Brien, showing that he understands, responds, die with honor, Tosk. And you can tell by the way he presents it, the way he says it, that he gets it. That it's not just saying the same thing. He's not rote repeating. He understands. Die with honor, Tosk. I like that. And that brings me to the sticky cultural question. I'm not even going to get into the Prime Directive involved with this. I, I kind of already brought it up. Blah, blah, blah. Whatever. What I want to talk about is the nature of meddling. This is actually something that I have discussed uh, many times in my own written works. The idea of you see a situation and it's like, oh my god, that's horrible. But then it's not as horrible as it first seemed. But then it's kind of a weird situation. Like like this example, this is a perfect example. This is almost a textbook example of what I'm talking about. The hunters and the tosk. The tosk are sentient, sapient beings. No one debates that. The hunters, sentient, sapient beings, no one debates that, so we've established some ground rules. The hunters train, and it's implied, care for and take care of the Tosk until they're ready for the hunt. And they are you know, specifically bred, specifically designed to be this great prey, but then it's not just... They don't treat them as if they're... <sighs> tissue, Kleenex. I'm going to start using that. 
because they, they treat them a little bit more like they would... God, I don't even know how to put this. See, okay, let me explain what I mean by this. Too often, a fictional work will say, oh, he treats him like he's just an object or a tool. Thing is, any person who actually has a brain will treat their tools very well. They want their tools to keep functioning and functioning well, right? I've also heard the term, they treat them like they're cattle. Well, I mean, I hate to point this out, there are obviously exceptions to this, but for the most part, at least on a small scale, cattle ranchers take very, very careful care of their cattle because they give a damn, because they're important to them, right? So it's the... Too often fiction treats this so like the hunters could have easily come across as rote, standard sci-fi bad guys by simply treating the Tosk as if they are Kleenex. And I think that's probably the best example I could come up with, because you get a bit of Kleenex right here, right? And then you... And then you toss it, right? You don't care about that Kleenex. You don't want to keep it in good condition. You don't want to make sure it's happy or it's in the right... No, you rip, snot, done. That's it, right? No care whatsoever. But they don't treat the Tosk like that. They treat the Tosk like they are honored, venerated individuals who are, you know, and, and the best ones of them are the ones who will be, you know, will be honored by the, by the great death at the end of the hunt and these excellent things and blah, blah, blah. And I could, I could go off. I could speculate on this for a while. But going just based on what's in the episode, we see that they obviously care and that the Tosk culturally are in the same position. And you see how this gets sticky for should we interfere, not can we? Although it kind of irritates me that the hunters are just presented as better, but whatever, let's not get into that. <laughs> That's something that irritates me on every Star Trek. Hey, here's an alien of the week we never met before. Oh, they're better than us. Okay, that's great. <laughs> Anyways, should we interfere? Should we get involved in that kind of a thing? Is it wrong what they're doing? These are complicated questions, which I'm actually not going to answer, because that's not my job to answer questions like these. It's my job to bring them up and make you think about them. Is it wrong what they're doing to the, to the Tosk? Well, if I may use a quick comparison, if I asked the question, is what the founders are doing to the Jem'Hadar wrong, you'd probably say, of course it freaking is, because the founders treat the Jem'Hadar like Kleenex. Or at best, like currency, pennies to be spent. But the hunters clearly do revere and care about the Tosk, so it's not the same situation. And the Tosk clearly want this. Tosk himself, you know, is like, please let me die with honor. Please let me die with honor. Remember that earlier on? And I've already discussed the significance of that, right? But how much of this is brainwashing? How much of this is cultural momentum? Should there be a revolution? Should there be an insurrection of the Tosk people? Is that our place to decide? These are the kind of questions that I love Deep Space Nine when they bring up now and again. And Deep Space Nine is usually at its best, in my opinion, when they don't answer those questions. I'm probably reading a little bit too much into an early season one episode, but I do admit this topic fascinates me, and I could just keep going with this. I've already got some ideas of stuff based on this relationship for, for stories of my own between the Tosk and the Hunters, because it's fascinating in its own right. It's so rare to see this kind of a thing in fiction instead of the usual Kleenex analogy, like Deep Space Nine will later do, as I just demonstrated. But I want to talk about one last thing here really quick. This thing kind of irritates me, if I may be so bold. 
there's a scene which was designed to be a way to show that Deep Space Nine is not TNG in this episode. Now, I would not have known that if I was not told it. And usually I take that as a failure on behalf of the creators. You know, if I have to be told, I intend such and such, then you failed. You failed to convey this message to me. The intended message was that on TNG they would never break the rules, and they would never violate the laws, and they would never go against their captain, and they would never go against Starfleet. And anyone who's seen Star Trek could probably understand why that's not exactly a new message or something of any big impact or significance. But, according to the creators of DS9, at least early DS9, so this was before uh, Ira Stephen Barrow or Ronald D. Moore were really involved, According to the creators, this was intended to be a big moment, to show that O'Brien was willing to break the rules and to go against Starfleet. Um, okay. <laughs> it's, this, it's the second scene with Quark, when he's in the bar, and he's like, that's it, I can break the rules. And that's why they spend so much time on that moment, and why O'Brien has this look of utter astonishment on him, because it is intended to look like this is this gargantuan revelation to him. Oh my god, I don't always have to follow the straight and narrow. I'm not on TNG anymore. I would love to hear your guys' thoughts about that moment, because again, I would have never caught that otherwise. Last comment, and another thing I would love to hear your comments about, is the Cisco thing. Now, there's a subplot that's going to go through... <sighs> Gosh, I think at least the first two seasons of DS9. And I call that subplot, Cisco is weird. <laughs> Let me explain. There's several times, and I remember this irritating me back in the day when I was watching this for the first time. Or I should say, watching this for the second time, to be more accurate. Because it's like Cisco's like, oh, I'm going to read you the riot act, and I'm going to talk about this, and you did this wrong, and I'll destroy you, and you're wrong, and wrong, and wrong. And by the way, I secretly uh, agree and approve of what you're doing. Carry on. What? Now, I get what they're going with that. The idea is that Cisco knows the rules and is, and is the kind of person who will follow the rules to the letter even when he disagrees with them. Now, this will eventually be dropped to the wayside. I believe the episode of the Maquis is when that, that subplot finally stops really being a thing. But it comes up repeatedly. In fact, this is actually the second time it's happened. He does this to Kira in... Um, Oh gosh, uh, past prologue, I believe he did this to Kira, and he does, and he does this here to O'Brien right at the end. Oh, I should, yeah, you're do this one more time, and you're off the station, and I mean it, Mister. I'm gonna want your badge and your gun. You know that that archetype is is how he's portrayed, even though he doesn't actually think that or mean that, and probably doesn't even really have the capacity to pull that off in some cases. And I get where they were going with it, but it just always irritated me, especially since it doesn't really strike me as very Cisco. It's kind of like how early TNG Picard doesn't really strike me as Picard, you know what I mean? It feels like they were just trying to find Cisco's character and hadn't really decided on which sliver they were going with yet. I don't know. Again, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but for now, I'll see you guys next time.